Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Hello and hi and welcome to Basic Folk. It's Cindy Howes. This is serious business time uh, on Basic Folk. We feature honest conversations with folk musicians. Guess what? I am pleased to be joined for the very first time by our brand new guest host, Lizzie No. Hey, Lizzie. Well, hi, Cindy. Oh, man. It's so nice to have you here. Um, before we dive into details about your interview with the one and only Amethyst Kia, I want to make sure that you get like a proper intro. So like for an in-depth dive, folks can check out Basic Folk episode 94, which we'll link on the website at basicfolk.com, um, which features Lizzie. But for now, Lizzie, how would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, Basic Folk community. I am really, really happy to be here. Um because I feel a kinship with this audience of people who really want to go deep on folk music, the lives of folk musicians, the inspirations around it. That's like my whole bag. Um, I am a singer-songwriter and a harpist in New York City, and folk music is just, it's my world. So I'm very happy to be a part of the podcast. What's something important that you'd want people to know about you before like going into this interview with Amethyst? Well, it's interesting. I'm not a journalist. I am a musician and I am a music fan and that is going to be how I approach all of the interviews. Um, Well, I'll try to keep some journalistic integrity and do a professional job. AP style, right? Yeah, but but for, for the most part, I'm just coming at these interviews with this attitude of like, this is someone whom I respect and whose music I've spent some time with. And I'm just so curious to know more about where their style came from, where what their inspirations are. So it might not be like the most traditional or detailed interview, but it's going to be heartfelt. I think you're selling yourself short there, Lizzie, because these interviews oh, are thank you. really rad that you're doing. And I'm so pumped for people to check them out. Thank you, Cindy. Of course. Lizzie put an EP out in December and released a full-length album in 2019 called Vanity that is like a bananas look at the real-life human ego. Um, You can find them and buy them where you get music. And another way to support Lizzie is on Ampled. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's a worker collective of musicians, tech workers, and then music fans. Um, And it's kind of like a crowdfunding site, but it's sort of more than that. Because not only does it pay my bills, it also is this subscriber-only place where I post new music. Anytime I'm experimenting with recording or like writing blog posts, I do photo shoots, music videos, all kinds of stuff that's like not fit to print for the masses, but it's just like a little community where I share stuff. Okay, um, let's get into this interview. Lizzie, can you set us up for Amethyst? I would love to. I have been a huge fan of Amethyst for a few years now, um, and she is just a rising star in the Roots community. She's a phenomenal guitarist, a phenomenal songwriter, um, and her singing voice is unmistakable. And we really get into that in the interview. Um, I just kind of pick her brain for thoughts on technique and how to use your natural instincts and balance that with uh, classical training, which she has. Um, Amethyst is from Johnson City, Tennessee, grew up in the suburbs, and is a self-taught guitarist. Um, And then she went on to study the bluegrass tradition at East Tennessee State University. 
um, she re- she released two solo albums and then joined a super group called Our Native Daughters um, with Rhiannon Giddens, Layla McCalla, and Allison Russell. We are going to be talking about her new album, Wary and Strange. Um, and one of the highlights on Wary and Strange is a new recording of Black Myself, which is a song that has really taken the folk world by storm. Um, It was Folk Alliance Song of the Year. It was nominated for a Grammy. And she approached it with a completely new um, spirit on this album. She she re-recorded it as like a blues rock version. So I, I really wanted to know about the progress that that song made from the Our Native Daughters sessions to the Wary and Strange sessions. Nice. And you also talk about her adorable dad. Oh, it's so great. She tours with her dad. Her dad has been touring with her for years um, and has been like a huge force behind, I think, her longevity. Like he's part of her support system. That's very sweet. We talk about Marvel. We talk about comics. We talk about fashion. We just really get into all of it. This interview has everything. It has something for everyone. So we're going to listen to a clip of the new version of Black Myself, um, and then we'll get to our conversation with Amethyst Kia, Lizzie No and Amethyst Kia, talking for the very first time on Basic Folk. Um, is there anything that you want to add um, before we check out this song and get into it? I would say listen to both versions. Um, listen to the Our Native Daughters version and listen to the Wary and Strange version. I think that gives a great sense of Amethyst's range as a blues, rock, and folk artist. Nice. All right, well, let's check it out. This is Amethyst Kia with Black Myself. Thanks, Lizzie. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I love your new record. I have loved seeing you live multiple times, and you are just the moment. Um, (laughs) Thank you. So welcome to Basic Folk. And I just want to jump right in with, like, the very beginning. You've said that growing up in Tennessee, you were one of the few families in town that didn't attend church. And that really stood out to me because I think a lot of people think of Black music as church music. So I'm kind of curious about your introduction to music and how that sort of secular introduction changed your perspective on what it meant to be a black musician, what it meant to be an American musician, if that influenced you at all. Yeah, um, both of my parents really loved listening to music. And my dad is uh, he's an audiophile. So he had he had like three way speakers turntable cd player reel to reel cassette like just an entire section of the living room like (laughs) devoted yeah devoted to music and he's always been very curious and adventurous when it came to music um he sang in a band for a little bit part-time as he he was like a manager at sears for several years back in the 70s and he uh, he lead singing in a band that played a lot of a lot of the, the really popular music of that time, like Almond Brothers mm-hmm. and Earth, Wind and Fire, Carlos Santana. So he um, he's just always had a wide range of interests when it came to music. So my introduction to music was through his records and CDs. But I think as far as my identity, like I guess my identity embracing myself as being a black person was a bit of a struggle because I grew up in, we grew up in white suburbia on top of kind of, you know, having a, like a, a non-religious sort of lifestyle. And both of my parents, you know, both had this 
general idea of like a creator or a higher power, but it wasn't like direct, it wasn't connected with organized religion. Um, And Mm -hmm. and a lot of that had to do with sort of the kind of hypocrisy sometimes that comes along with, um, with organized religion. It boils down to finding fellowship of people that accept you for who you are and not, and not exclude you if you don't follow every single rule. So that's kind of, um, kind of where that kind of stems from. Um, my, mm-hmm. my father always taught me to, um, you know, to ask questions and think for myself. And if you're not being treated fairly, it doesn't matter what the religious relation is. If they're not treating you right, then you need to, that's not, that ain't it, you know? Um, yeah. so that's, <laughs> so that's kind of like the basis from which I come from as far as, you know, the people I choose to, to be around. But I think for me, Growing up in a very like Eurocentric appearing area, uh, it wasn't really until in my teenage years when things like, you know, you start going through puberty, you start having like feelings for other people and then and trying to, I guess, find your way as far as how you're going to present yourself gender wise. And Mm -hmm. there's all of those things happening. And for me, um... And for the people around me, I always felt like I was ugly for the longest time. Mm. Um, And it had a lot to do with, you know, having Eurocentric images around me and also on on television. I mean, the kind of representation that's happening now in different parts of entertainment was not really happening. And if there was a presentation of blackness, it was... It was, I don't want to say one dimensional, but there was just one aspect of what it meant to be black, like listening to hip hop, listening to R&B and soul, listening to certain kinds of music. So there was sort of this, which obviously that is what a lot of black, that's what plenty of black people listen to. So not that there's anything wrong with that, but it kind of put me in a position where the things that I was starting to gravitate toward, like, you know, alternative rock and alternative folk music, indie music, and I wasn't seeing myself reflected in the in the sounds and ideas that really kind of resonated with me. So there was this in-betweenness of, you know, being told by my white peers that I'm not really black, haha, as like a joke, and then right, right, right. by the black people that I did encounter, thinking that I was acting white, they thought I talked funny, they thought I was talking, yeah. trying to talk like a white person, and kind of having this in-betweenness um, was really, was kind of, it was just very difficult and confusing on top of me sort of being uncertain of my sexuality. The fact that, right. the fact that like I didn't present in a feminine way and mm-hmm. because I didn't present in a feminine way, it came into question where am I even a woman at all because I'm not presenting in this way. And so I just had all these different things kind of kind of coming yeah. at me. It wasn't really until my last two years of high school, my parents transferred me to mm-hmm. creative arts high school where there was where everybody was like a nerd and a weirdo and right. like and being able to be open about your sexuality was totally accepted there. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think to kind of get back around to, um, you know, I guess connecting the church and gospel music with black music. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that gospel music and the, from the black church has played an enormous role in pop vocals and any, mm-hmm. any, in, in any kind of contemporary um, American vocal, like pays a huge debt to gospel. And so well, I've had people ask me, you know, if I grew up singing in the church because of the way that I sing right. and it's like... I didn't actually have to come up in the church because it's in all of the music that we're listening to. It's in secular music. I mean, there was a point in time yeah. where like back in the, back in the day, people would call the secular music, they'd call it gutter music. So they right. were referring to like blues and stuff like that as like gutter music or trash or whatever. So, I mean, so it's like I could listen to so many different kinds of music and, you know, but I think it is important to obviously like talk about and you know pay homage to like it is gospel style vocals and music so it's just it's kind of it's it's everywhere and 
I think black gospel music has made everything sound even that much better in my opinion, but <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Well, I want to, I actually, you reminded me, I want to talk about awesome nerd stuff. What was your introduction to anime? My introduction to anime was actually from a group of black kids that I befriended when I was in, um, when I was at my creative arts high school. Um, oh, yeah. So like, that was my introduction to it, actually. And did you see yourself in the characters? Like what drew it, to, drew you to it? Well, I think what drew it to me, well, during that time I had, I was very interested in like vampires. I was reading like Anne Rice and stuff like that. So my introduction, the, the, all I really knew about anime prior to meeting my the, the friends that I made there um, mm-hmm. was like Pokemon, which I wasn't really like interested in that. I didn't have anything against it. It just wasn't <laughs> really my thing. Um, so that's all I really knew about anime. But my, my friends were like, no, like you need to, there's, there's different genres of anime. It's not just one thing. So I got introduced to Vampire Hunter D. And that was my moment of like, oh man, this is cool. Like this is, so it kind of opened my world to some other stuff. So, so then I like watched Cowboy Bebop. Um, Mm -hmm. There's this one movie that I, that I borrowed. um, And I, and I still have like all these years later called the record of Lotus war where there's, it's like a high fantasy thing with like L with like dark elves and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think what I saw in the characters was just I was I've always been drawn to shows and movies and characters regardless of the medium where the the characters are trying are struggling to find their place in the world because I mm. feel like that's what I have been doing for most of my life. So um so yeah, I think with a lot of the anime I was watching, a lot of the the shows that I ended up watching or movies I watched always dealt with finding your place in the world and like standing up against adversity and that kind of thing so very cool um okay I want to get back into like childhood music stuff like your path as a musician and a songwriter so you learned guitar and then you picked up the banjo um and you've talked a little bit about how the banjo was eye-opening for you because you're able to play rhythm and melody parts at the same time which is different than being like a rhythm guitarist so what I want to know is were you already writing songs at that point when you were when you were kind of bouncing between those two instruments did learning banjo change your songwriting did you kind of get access to different kinds of techniques in writing and performing based on having both of those instruments under your belt yeah um I think prior to prior to learning banjo um I had been writing a lot of because I did creative writing when I was in high school Mm -hmm. so I kind of focused on like writing poetry and like trying to write short stories but what eventually what would come to be is like writing taking that poetry and then turning it into song is what eventually what would what would happen but I think when I first when I started playing banjo and really started digging into old-time music I kind of songwriting took a back seat for a few years um just because I wanted to focus on learning and understanding this music and how um and you know how I can you know incorporate that into my wheelhouse and I think with learning about roots music it kind of gave me an opportunity to to be become a little more grounded because again I was Mm -hmm. still kind of floating around and it felt like I needed to find some grounding before I delve back into songwriting because for me my songwriting and my all my writing was always about was always very personal and about me figuring things out so I felt like I needed to ground myself in something Mm -hmm. before continuing to I guess tell my story later or however um, however that would work. You were gathering the tools. Yeah. So with banjo, mm-hmm. around the time I started learning banjo is also the same time that I started um, learning how to, um, some people call it Piedmont style picking. Some call mm-hmm. it Merle Travis style picking, but it's, you know, country picking, I think is the most, you know, like the most like maybe neutral way to describe it. Cause yeah. it covers both of those things. Um, but I think for me, coming into it with only having like some 
like the only finger style playing that I knew on guitar at that point was like classical style, which was fun. Right. And I was like, we'd create, be able to create some stuff with it, but the rhythm is what I really wanted. So when I started playing Clawhammer banjo, this idea of melody and rhythm um, really kind of helped propelled me to try to apply some of those principles to rhythm guitar. So then I started looking up like other kinds of guitar that incorporate rhythm and melody. And I came across like there's a percussive style guitar. Right. Um, and then, so I kind of ended up incorporating, I incorporate some of those elements along with like um, country style picking. And then, so yeah, I mean, I guess the best way to describe it is like my being able to do rhythm and melody on banjo, but with it all being downstrokes, I was able I was able to kind of find a way to incorporate that same idea with uh, fingerstyle picking too. So it kind of so my my style of playing is like just a mix of you know percussive and and like you know the Piedmont style. So so yeah, it's kind of a mix of those things now. Here's a question. I've seen you perform a few times. Your stage presence is very focused, very calm. But you've also said that growing up, you didn't think of yourself as a performer and you were kind of uncomfortable on stage at first. So I guess what I want to know is like, what are the emotions like for you on stage now? Um, What are the emotions of an Amethyst Kia show like, like a solo show versus like, how does it feel to be on stage with a band? With a solo show, there's, I think for me, I'm so used to doing things on my own that even after, even after the years of like playing in bands at ETSU and then also like having a backing band when it financially made sense for me because solo, solo gigs, I have been able to pay my bills with solo gigs, which is why I (laughs) <laughs> have been staying solo for most of the time. Um, things are... I know about that solo hustle. Yeah. It, it can be a little lonely on the road, but you you take home 100% of the money. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, yeah. So, yeah. And, and the fact that I'm able to, to do that and pay my bills, it's kind of like, I mean, this kind of really takes priority. But the other thing, too, is that I'm so used to doing things by myself, and I, en- I enjoy having... I actually enjoy alone time time quite a bit. It takes a while before I start to feel lonely. So Mm -hmm. for me, it's kind of like, you know, and also on the road too. um, anything that didn't involve like, you know, flying or something like that. You know, my dad has also been would also come out on the road with me too. So like, because it, you know, every little bit helps. I mean, on one hand, while obviously I'm very comfortable like traveling by myself although Mm -hmm. it wasn't always that way because in the beginning I didn't really you know everything was so new to me and so my dad Mm -hmm. my dad's traveled a bit and you know is very good about being organized and like doing things so like he definitely helped give me the tools to like be able to be self-sufficient but there does come a time you know as you want to grow your stage show it there comes a time when you do have to ask you do have to have help so it's really over time it's really it really just became a thing where it's just become a little more difficult because i want to expand and grow my stage show but there's only you know and bringing more merch bring more instruments but like it 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 comes to a point where it's like it's really hard to do it by yourself so um luckily slowly my budget is slowly increasing to where Hallelujah. I actually can't. Yeah. <laughs> like this year, there's going to be quite a bit of uh, uh, trio shows um, this year. So, um, so, and now there's like more money to actually be able to, you know, comfortably do that and still take yeah. some, still take some money home to pay the bills. So I think for me, um, you know, playing with a band, on stage, especially if I've been playing solo for a while, can actually be a bit of a difficult transition for me mm-hmm. because when other people start becoming involved in the stage show, um, and I don't, I don't know what this is or where it comes from. I have my suspicions, but for me, if there's more things going on around me, I have a harder time 
focusing on my performance and I don't mm-hmm. know it's that's always been like a, a mint it's been always been this sort of like mental um I don't want to say weakness but like I'm so like sensitive to like things going on around me that like yeah. I have to try even harder to not to like keep my focus um so sometimes with the band while it is fun to play with other people it also can be challenging and I've been trying to find different ways for me to be able to you know cope with the anxiety of like sensory overload I feel like I get I get overwhelmed pretty easily um if there's a lot going on and so that's been an ongoing kind of challenge for me to I talked to my therapist about these things so we're uh going through coping mechanisms yeah if you're the front person you're literally encased in sound from other people yeah and that's so different than that sort of singular column of energy Mm -hmm. that flows through you when you're playing solo yeah and I know a lot of people are like they completely thrive and like have no issues with they have no issues with some of the things that I'm talking about I think that's that's great I'm glad glad that they're able to do that (laughs) but like yeah just my I've always just kind of even after all these years um I've gotten better at coping with it but I still, you know, have, I have to like really practice being able to shut out all of the noise around me and still be able to focus. So, you know, yeah. just one of those things, but mm-hmm. I, f- but I'm, but I feel like most people when I'm performing, they don't notice that. And that's, mm-hmm. that's good. So it means I'm doing my job. Do you remember when you first started really feeling comfortable on stage? I can't really pinpoint a time. Yeah. I think as I've gotten more used to like having a routine with traveling and sound check and getting ready for the show, as I've developed a routine over the years, I've become more and more comfortable. There's cause there's some times where maybe something goes wrong in the day. Like maybe, you know, I can't really think of an example right now, but maybe like something goes wrong and then I kind of have to, you know, make up for lost time or I kind of have to like rush before getting to the stage or something like that. That is the worst. For me, it's like if we hit traffic on the way to a city and I don't have time to like take a shower or take a nap or like just stretch my legs and you just run into sound check. It's like this horrible like avalanche of energy. (laughs) That's the thing that happens. It's either it's either something happens in traffic or it's like. I misjudge my time on how long it's going to take me to like eat or whatever. Like it's usually, it it usually it's either around travel or it's around, or it's around eating where my timing will just be off. And I already, I don't, I fully admit I'm not, I don't have the best concept of time and it's not anything about me thinking that I can just show up anytime I want. Cause I really, (laughs) I, I put in fail safes so that I will still show up to whatever I need to be on time, if not maybe like five minutes late. But like, I have, to, I have to put in fail safes because my, I just have no concept of time. So, <laughs> but like, yeah, having to rush to the stage, like I, that, you know, I, I that, Horrible. that, that, fe- that doesn't, you know, doesn't feel great. But, you know, over time, I've been able to like figure things out. And for the most part, I'm able to like, you know, pretty much come to be on stage. I mean, I think now there's like, when I have like, opportunities like like when I opened for like Rhiannon or when I opened for like the Indigo Girls it was like a thing of those moments is that's when like that nervousness kind of creeps back in I mean I always get a little I mean I always get a little bit of like nervous excitement before performing but like for those big instances like that where it's like oh my god like more people are gonna have eyes on me than ever (laughs) like I can't screw this up so sometimes there's a little bit of you know there's definitely some pressure there too but I haven't, you know, I haven't choked yet, so I'll keep my fingers crossed and knock on wood. Okay, I want to keep talking about your performance style and your, and in particular, your vocal technique. I would say that your vocal style is kind of like deceptively natural in that it sounds like it's just sort of happening and it's very consistent and it's very authentic but at the same time, you have a degree in music. So was it ever challenging and is it ever challenging to balance what comes naturally with like the technical training that you have? <laughs> I mean, it's it's this is interesting because I've not been asked this question in quite this way. Actually, it's the first time I think I've been what? asked this specific question. Um, so 
to be perfectly honest, it does just happen. And Mm -hmm. I say that in the sense that I took, I took two semesters. So the equivalent of like, maybe like one year of, of vocal instruction. And that was, Mm -hmm. and my, my teacher, it was a Dan Boner, who was the director of Bluegrass Old Time Country Music Studies, a degree program I graduated from, uh, he uh he taught well he taught multiple things he's a very incredibly talented like technically cool. proficient multi instrumentalist but he also um he's also a singer and he was my vocal teacher for like a couple of semesters and he said to me that you already have like a naturally amazing voice like you have you have great tone you have great projection you mm-hmm. can project without with with ease. All I'm really here to do is to teach you how to develop vocal dynamics. So Mm. like singing for what the song calls for. So like singing in character, I guess, is the best way to describe it. Oh, that was on my list of questions. I'm so curious about your your ideas about singing in character. So I already had a good sense. I had a good sense of tone, a good sense of pitch and projecting Mm -hmm. and all of that. It was just not always going full blast, which is kind of what I would do. Um, right. So, so yeah, so I really, and, and also with like posture and breathing and then learning about things like, you know, staying hydrated and like yes. all that stuff, all the things to do to take care of your voice. So it's always at its best. But, um, but yeah, I mean, so the only technical things that I really know are just, you know, singing in character um, mm-hmm. and taking care of my voice. But for most of, and even now to this day, like I do think about the only technical things that go through my head when I'm singing are, okay, this needs to be softer. This needs mm-hmm. to be more aggressive. This needs to be like, that's how I think in terms of, of singing. But cause people have asked me about, you know, have you ever thought about like teaching voice or whatever? And it's mm-hmm. like, I have, I have never like took the time to develop a a pedagogy to even do that. I just like, if I hear something, I just try to do it and either it works or it doesn't like, it's very like, it's very, so it's very much feels like it's just happening, I guess. Right. And it's super personal to the, to your relationship with your, your physical body. Yeah. I have a question about, Oh wait, what was the name of your, you were in an old time string band. Tell me about that. What was it called? Uh, it was called the East Tennessee State University Old Time Pride Band. <laughs> okay, that's that's quite official. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was letting my imagination run wild, like yeah, the well, boys. <laughs> well, I, well, I think now. Well, I think now. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I think now they do allow for the band for like the band to like change it to mm-hmm. uh, a non-scholastic sounding name. I don't even know what to even say what that is. But the idea was, it's sort of like the varsity team and the junior varsity team in basketball, right? So you've got, you know, you had all the band sections that had yes. three required band performances throughout the mm-hmm. year. But then you had the varsity teams, the pride bands, which pride just stands for like ETSU pride. So mm-hmm. those bands were like the best players in the program and we would get the opportunity to like travel to other places. So we would have more shows than the other bands and we would have like practice like twice a week instead of like the the once a week. So, so yeah, so we were, um, so I was part of the very first old time pride band because for the longest time it was just bluegrass pride band because mm-hmm. the program started as mostly focusing in bluegrass, but it's grown to where it's included old time and country and also Celtic music because, um, Oh, neat. Because there's a Scots Irish studies and the Scotch Irish studies and bluegrass old time and country music are both under the Appalachian studies department. So they're all like interconnected. So mm-hmm. there's also an opportunity to be in either the country pride band, bluegrass pride or Celtic pride band. Um, so there was like four pride bands by the time I left, but I think they've allowed people to like, change the name to something else i think spunky but yeah but either way it's like you know yeah well this kind of leads me to some future questions i had about your new album if you will allow me i do feel like you touch on that tension between organicness and feeling like a machine yeah you know you talk about that on wild turkey uh, fancy drones of course which is such a cool song Mm, um 
and and then there's tender organs where it's sort of like the body's breaking down it's like it's actually so natural and so real and I've also read in an interview you said I have like a lot of thoughts about modern technology so I'm just curious if you like are one of these people that's like let's unplug let's go back to nature are you sort of like a cyborg you know future feminist we are all machines and that's amazing are you somewhere in the middle like what like talk to me about technology and and how you feel about it I think for me it's it's this it's like a balancing act I mean there there's so many awesome things that come from the natural world and also have happened in 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 technology and I think for me it is like a constant it, but it is a constant battle because the human brain has not really been able to catch up with the technology that we've created. So we're constantly like, we're battling, we're battling the algorithm. We are all Yoshimi fighting the robots. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, how do we, you know, how do we continue to use this technology that we've created to enhance our lives, but not, destroy everything else around us how do we how do we do that that's like the big question and I think I think for me another thing too kind of overlapping the real world issue of technology and nature and how to Mm -hmm. make those things work together um, is also my own sort of my own quest for a really long time to kind of be um like a robot from the standpoint of not wanting to distancing and disassociating myself from my feelings because of my abandonment issues and my rejection issues. And like, it's like, well, if I just don't get close to people, if I don't create meaningful relationships with people, then I won't have to worry about, you know, being alienated or being, if I just Mm -hmm. stay over here in my corner and just kind of keep people at a distance, then like, so in a way, like, when I would watch different movies, I would always be so envious of like the AI robot or, you know, because right. it's like they are not burdened, you know, like they have the they they have the cognitive thought, but they're not necessarily burdened with human emotion. But right. then but then but then I like, you know, I guess a few months back, I played a game called Detroit Becoming Human. And that's a it, that's an, a game about an AI like a group of AIs that are becoming sentient and they now are like so it's like so then there's also this the thing of like well how far can an AI go before before it can develop its own sentience so yeah I mean so so I think for me at the end of the day I've kind of I've, I've kind of realized through going through therapy that like trying to escape my emotions Mm -hmm. is like it's not really serving me well. It's not allowing me to be the person that I want to be or can be, you know? Right. And so like, I think at the end of the day, I think sentience and self-awareness, I mean, it's, it's kind of become a blessing and a curse in a lot of ways. Um, right. Uh, because when you start to ask, who am I, where do I come from? Like, and then people for thousands of years, millions of years have created all different kinds of stories as to why they exist. And then there's this, there's this tribal element that's still within our DNA where it's like, well, this person doesn't agree with me, so I need to kill them because they don't agree. So I don't know. I I just feel like we're, I feel like as human beings, we have the potential to be like white blood cells and like, continue to advance and protect each other and protect the world we live in. And then we can also be a virus where we just, where we go from, you know, country to country and like, you know, colonize and take the resources and then leave it bare and then move on to the next place. Like, I mean, which, I mean, we've obviously, we've seen that throughout history. We've seen where that's, where we very much have been acting like a virus, but it's very, but it's also evident that we also have the power to not do that. But you know, anyway, sorry, I went on a whole thing, but I think about this stuff a lot. (laughs) We are talking about Amethyst's brand new album, uh, Wary and Strange. It is 
it is such a powerful album. The themes on it are just like you could you could dig into it for a lifetime. And I think there's a you're really going into these topics of like, what is it to be human? What is it to be lonely? What is it to be an individual? Um, and I just want to talk about that even more. Like one lyric that stood out to me was on Firewater, where you said, I'm a ghost in the hall, a hate in the room. It really made me think about like Beloved, Toni Morrison, and then uh, The Spook Who Sat By The Door, that Sam Greenlee book where, you know, the CIA infiltrates black revolutionary groups, I think. And just like this, this theme in black literature of like spirits and ghosts and like who is real, who's, you know, who's outside the fold of, of humanity. Do you think about yourself like in conversation with like the black literary canon in that way? Do you think about, you know, blackness and loneliness as linked? Like, is there a link there for you? Or is it just like the songwriter point of view of like, I'm alone? Well, I mean, actually, that particular thought actually more went into black myself when I talk about you look in my eyes, but you don't see me. That was like, that was inspired by Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Oh, of course. So that, so that definitely like was a direct influence, but with with firewater that song was really me talking about um this was during a time when i had like decided to like step back from like partying and nightlife for a while because it was like starting to really just interfere with my personal and starting to affect my professional career and then i went back to some of the same places after like a year of like being on the road and traveling and then just having this weird sense of nostalgia, but also seeing that like I was in a lot of pain when I was out partying. Mm. Like I wasn't using it as like, Hey, I'm just having a good time. I was starting to use it to like continue to separate myself from my feelings. So Mm. that song is that, so that particular line is really kind of focusing on like my feeling of like being in despair because I, my the feelings that I had were about despair, my 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 unresolved grief for my mother. I was staying in school, like I went on to go into a master's degree program because I was afraid to like really truly hit the road full mm. time. Like there was a lot of I had a lot of fear in me, and so I yeah. felt like I was just this wisp of a person like not really fully formed and trying to figure something out. I was haunted by, by my fear that I felt like I was just, I was just a ghost floating around. So, but I mean, I, I really loved the other ideas that you drew from that too, because I very much, at least in other, in other songs, like I said, with like myself, mm-hmm. like Black myself. I, ve- I very much. So the answer to your question is yes, but just not about <laughs> It's not about that song. <laughs> yeah. Well, but let's yeah. talk about Black Myself. I mean, to, to introduce those people who might be living under a rock and haven't heard about it, haven't heard the song. It's a song that you wrote for your supergroup, Our Native Daughters. And it was a huge hit. It was nominated for a Grammy. It was Folk Alliance Song of the Year. It touched a lot of people. Um, and that original recording is just amazing. Um And then you kind of started from scratch on the new album with that same song. Like, it is the same song. It's the Mm -hmm. same spirit. But to me, the arrangement is a little more jagged. It's it's like a really roots rock in your face anthem. And I'm curious, what was your approach to re-recording? Like, what were you trying to capture on the new recording um, on your solo album? I really wanted to catch that confrontational element of the Mm. song I think um you know I also had had a longer time to really sit with the song too and play it more because as you may already know like with with our native daughters it was a very much organic kind of experience where it was we were writing and then also recording at the same time so I'd had you know you know over a year to like really sit with the song and sing it more. And right. so I wanted, I really did want to re-record it in my new sense of like settling into it. Cause it, hmm. you know, everything happens so fast, you know? So um, to be able to sit with that and really deliver it in a more um, just in a more in, in, in the, in the real sense of the spirit of the song, which is, it is a very, con- it's a very confrontational song, which is something that, I hadn't really written any confrontational songs really until this pro until this project. So, and also when I performed it 
solo and then also when I performed it um when I performed it with a band like it was it, it was always kind of be like kind of pushing like more towards the edge of like rocket in your face so um yeah so to obviously so there was that aspect but then also you know seeing this this sustained interest in talking about systematic racism in mainstream media is like you know I mean when Netflix is has has devoted a genre now to like <laughs> black stories I'm just like okay this is this is All a right, new this is a new era trend now yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's like it's you know it's no longer this thing where it's like we get like everybody's outraged about another murder by police and then two weeks later you know we go back to we go, we go back to having brunch or whatever you know <laughs> like i mean it's so I, it felt right also to like re-release it within with that in mind too to like because trying to do my part in continuing the conversation because for me i've always kind of had to find a way to find my place within speaking out because for me i'm a very like you know i for the most part i'm a pretty private person i like my Mm -hmm. alone time but i know that like i still want to be you know part of the community and part of speaking out about things so i I feel like the best way I can do that is through music and, you know, and to have this opportunity to like let this song resurface during this, like really this second, you know, a second wave of civil rights is what's happening right now. And it's it's happening in very much so in like all levels of industry. I mean, this whole, this whole new movement of like, you know, black artists being like, yeah, I play and listen to country. I'm, I'm a singer songwriter. I play acoustic guitar. Right. I have a million questions about Wary and Strange and I know we have limited time, but I have to tell you, I was so, I was shook to hear that you re-recorded that album twice like you recorded it three times top to bottom I would yep. literally never have the courage to do that and I just want to like can you let us inside your head like where were you at emotionally in those first sessions versus like okay we're coming back into the studio to do it again versus that third session and at what point were you like this album is done so the first time through the for me it felt like I put a lot of pressure on myself um Mm -hmm. I was in a situation where you know I had limited funds and the way that things worked out I was going to be able to record it right before recording um our native daughters and it was going to be working again with Dirk Powell in the same studio and I felt this and in my own mind and I wasn't signed at this point in my mind, I was like, I need to like, this is a really cool opportunity to like create another record and kind of go from there. But because of me putting that pressure on myself, I kind of just went in and was, I like, I was rehashing songs I'd already recorded. I was like pulling out material that I really hadn't played in a while, just trying to like fill stuff out and not really truly like, not really like approaching this in a creative way and more like I need to put out an album because it's been a few years and I don't want to so it was you know I kind of put the cart before the horse and I allowed my anxiety to sort of drive my decisions so down the line and after our native daughters um, I had had like a writer's block and that block had been broken and so I ended up writing like some more songs and I'm like what I'm writing right now is so much more representative of where I am than what I just recorded. So then I decided that I wanted to, you know, add some other songs and maybe and and ditch some of the other songs that I'd already recorded. And then, you know, I amicably parted ways with Dirk because I decided I because at this point I decided I wanted to take another direction and um I ended up going to another studio in Asheville. And then, and I, the, the back in the band that I was, that was playing with me at that time, we went and I recorded the other new songs that I'd written and also some songs that like, I just hadn't recorded yet that had been written for a little while. Cause I was like, this is representative of what I'm doing. And this just makes more sense. And at that time I was like, I had a little bit more money so I could like, you know, throw some more money down. And, and I think for me, 
My other issue too is that when I was doing both of these recordings, I was also like still I was doing a lot of traveling, I was playing a lot of shows right. and I wasn't really I wasn't really giving myself like the kind of like rest and self-care that I really needed mm-hmm. to like perform at my tip-top shape in the studio. Sure. Um so listening back to those older recordings to a person that's never heard me, they wouldn't know the difference, but like I could tell that like you know, I was tired and I was like, just hanging on by a thread. So by this time, when I went back in the studio again, and at this time I had, I had hired management. So at this point it was like, go back in the studio, record these songs and then start pitching it to labels. So then at this point there was no producer other than like me, but like, it's Mm -hmm. hard to, it's hard to produce. And then also like, it's just, it's kind of impossible to like, Be able to have that oversight and forethought right. when you're when you're right in the middle of doing a bunch of stuff. So I always feel like it's impossible to like switch hats. Like one minute you're in like creative performance mode. Next minute you have to be in like organizing critical mode. Yeah. Next minute you're listening back to things and edit. It's just like it's too much for one human person. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's really hard. So yeah. um, once this once, you know, obviously I got picked up by got picked up by Rounder. And once I got connected with Tony Burke, who ended up producing the record, the big issue was reconciling these songs from Dirk Sessions and then the songs from Echo Mountain and making them cohesive in their sound because they're very different recordings, very different instrumentation. And at that point, you know, when when I actually uh, got to, when I did get to the studio, it was, and actually it was like a day before I got to the studio um, and Tony said, in order to make this work, in order to get the sound that you want, we're going to have to like re-record everything. Oh my God. What did that feel like to hear? Well, at that time, I think had I not had a label paying for it, <laughs> I would yes. have probably like had a mental breakdown. But the fact that I got, you know, I got an advance from the label, of course, and that helped me recoup pretty much all of the money Great. that I spent but then they're also gonna you know pay for me to to be at sound city studio and to pay for tony berg to do like with the label backing it was like okay well i mean if we need to do that i'll i'll come in ready now obviously there was like you know i had to reframe well it's like i've been in the studio twice i've done all this work i've worked with all these different people right and then we're going to be re-recording again but the way I've kind of reframed that and after like, you know, talking to, you know, talking to, you know, people on my team and, and some of the other musicians I played with, the idea is that like all of these things happened to lead me to where I am now. So these other things needed to happen in order for me to even have the album I have today. So even though, yes, most of that stuff didn't get used, it's like it was part of the path. It was part of the journey. Right. So after being able to reframe it in that way, it's like, it's like, okay, this this is what needed to happen in order for this album to be what it is. I think it's so interesting to hear what goes into, because it really is a great album, Amethyst. I keep saying it. And I feel like a lot of times as listeners, we have no idea what goes into the albums that we love and mm-hmm. all of the hours that went into writing and producing, performing it till the point that it was honed. And then like all the recordings that never made the final record. It's that fascinates me like what was left on the cutting room floor was needed for what you ultimately came out with this is uh something else I'm curious about so with with Wary and Strange I feel like the costuming the photos that you're pairing with the album um the visuals are like a new chapter for you I mean you've always had distinctive style but it seems like you're pushing it even further now um yeah what is your intention behind how you're presenting right now? Do you have a stylist? Do you have like a big vision of like, this is my image right now? What is that? What is that feeling like now? Well, yeah, I mean, everything that's happening right now is, is really able to happen because I now have an amazing team of people that believe in my music, believe in what I'm doing, mm-hmm. already already like stylistically what I've established on my own and are only wanting to help me get the resources I need to continue to push that and continue to elevate that. Yeah. You know, with the photos for with the with the late with the newest promo photos and the photo photos that were used for the record, at that point I 
was right at the beginning of really wanting to transition and elevate the style that I've already kind of incorporated and really wanting to, to continue to push that kind of visual and idea of like, of worry and strange, as you saw, like with, with the artwork, with the final artwork that's, Mm -hmm. that was selected. I mean, it's to be able to have a team of people, experienced professional people that like, that have the expertise to like, be able to make things happen. And for me to be able to say what I want and for them to be able to like, be able to like deliver on that and be able to bounce off ideas has been amazing. They have a wonderful art department. Um, and then obviously like with the music video work, yeah. they have a wonderful, they have a wonderful video commissioner there that yeah. I worked with. You're like a badass Phoenix. Yeah. I mean, wow. I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, there's definitely like, there's definitely like a, I've always been a big proponent of like the idea of death and rebirth mm-hmm. and that like, we're not, I don't feel like we're meant to be exactly the same all the time. Mm. In fact, when people try to stay the same, it ends up like crippling them is at least what I've seen in my life. Anytime I decided I want to embrace something new that was going to either like evolve me or elevate me or help me learn something new. Anytime I embrace that, like, just more good things happen. Like there's this, so you get a, you get this sense of like confidence and excitement to be able to do something that you've never done before. And then it, and then when you try it and then it feels good and it feels right. So now I actually do, I am working with um, a stylist now. So, and there's been quite a few things that I've video performances and things I've been a part of and been working on since working with the stylists that have that are going to be, you know, out in the world. Oh, I can't um, wait soon. So um so yeah. So yeah. my style and my, you know, stage presence and the music and everything is going to continue to, you know, be be pushed forward as I continue to like embrace and try new things. And again, uh, having you know, Concord and Rounder again are just absolutely incredible. I mean, you know, Allison, you know, mm-hmm. Allison Russell, yeah. who released her released her album Ooh, yesterday. Rockstar. Um, you know, she's with Concord under Fantasy. Yeah. So yeah, it's just you know, there's just they're Concord's doing a, like amazing things with with all of their artists, and you know, they're they're not and they're not a af- the Concord isn't afraid to like invest money into black country and folk artists like they see they see what's up they see what's up they're not afraid to like invest in that it's very clear that people are really enjoying and loving what we're doing and um yeah oh man I'm just I'm so into this new album and I think people are just gonna get so much from it uh are you willing to do a lightning round oh sure I will say though I I I don't I take my answers and overthink everything so seriously. So this is my challenge to okay. not do that. But okay, it's so really here hard, so. is my gentle but very firm <laughs> rule. The only rule is you cannot get any clarification. Just go from the gut. Explaining my Mm-mm. why I said what I said. Okay, quick, quick, quick. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do my this, best. This exercise is going to be timed. There are no wrong okay. answers, but we're keeping it moving so okay. that it'll be easy and quick. Okay, what is a song that makes you cry every time? Um, Lighthouse by Nickel Creek. What is your coffee order? Uh, I'm thinking of what it used to be and what it actually is now. <laughs> Damn it. Uh, my coffee order is just drip now because I can't be around espresso anymore. So right. Okay. Just regular coffee. <laughs> <laughs> would you choose, if you had a superpower, would you choose flying or invisibility? I can't have both. <laughs> Amethyst? <laughs> All right. You're breaking the um, rules. <laughs> all right. Um, I think flying. Great. Vanessa Williams or Whitney Houston? Whitney Houston. Um, what is your most shameful quarantine activity? I'm not ashamed of anything that I did. Oh, I love that for you. Um, <laughs> Star Trek or Star Wars? Ooh, I, I'll say Star Wars because I've watched more of that than Star mm-hmm. Trek, but I... Nothing against Star Trek, though. No. No offense. Um, And finally, what is your favorite snack when you're on tour? Cliff bars. Cliff bars. Okay, Amethyst Kia, you are an icon. You are a fantastic musician. The new album, Wary and Strange, is so, so good. 
Thank you for coming on Basic Folk. It's just been so great talking with you. And I can't wait to see you live again. Yeah, this is one of the most fun interviews I've ever had. It's been <gasps> Thank I could, like you. I could talk I could talk to you for like hours. Like it's it's so great to meet you. It's really awesome. And you I really too. appreciate doing this. Yeah. Basic Folk This Week was produced by John Nungesser. Our music is composed by Alex Stanton of Townspeople. Special thanks to our guest host, Lizzie No for doing her first interview on Basic Folk, and she will be returning soon, so please subscribe so you don't miss any of her interviews. Basic Folk is on the American Songwriter Podcast Network. I'm Cindy House. Thanks so much for checking out the pod today. And if you liked it, what would be even so much better than than not doing this is sharing this episode with a friend so you can do that and you can tell them that they can find basic folk wherever they get podcasts wherever you got this podcast or at our website basicfolk.com bye